I have my questions. Oh, okay. <laughs> Comes prepared, huh? Okay. Oh, my Gana to Mirandasya. Gananjana Salakaya. Chaksurum Militam. Gena Tasme, she would Krishna Chaitanya. Nityananda Sohodito Gorai Pushkovanto Chitro Sando Tamundo He Krishna Karuna Sindhu Dinabandu Jagatpate Gopi Shagopi Kaganta Rarakanta Namostute Tapta Kanchana Gaurangi Radhe Bindavanishwari Prashadhanu Sute Devi Pranamami Hare Shri Guru Vashna Guru Parampara Ki Jai Gaur Bhakta Vrinda Ki Jai Gaur Premanande So good evening everyone Friends from Prabhupada Village and surrounding areas Pleasure to be here So this was um, evening was billed as an evening um, in which I would entertain questions from all of you, and um, so you have brought some questions. Does anybody else have some questions? Let me look at these. These might be. That's for a few evenings, so there's quite know, a few here. Yeah. yeah. I don't want to. Ta- I don't want to. You know, take. You don't have, you know, whatever. It's just mm-hmm. something you said you liked those questions, so I'm just bringing them back to you because of that <laughs> comment. Well, I guess I, I like, uh, these are contra- some controversy ones. Uh, I like controversy in the sense that uh, Sri Krishna's Kaviras Goswami has taught us we should not shy away from that, that uh, it will help to um, uh, fix our... Uh, minds and uh, and uh, enable us to get to the to the truth of the matter and um, this is, of course philosophically speaking what is the truth what is the, the conclusion what is the Siddhanta particular um, issue he says that in the context of uh, establishing his Siddhanta the Gaudiya Goswami Siddhanta that uh, that that Krishna's too Bhagavan Swayam. It seems like so natural for us, but it was a huge controversial issue. Krishna's too Bhagavan Swayam means that Krishna is the uh, is the uh, well. Krishna is the source of Narayan. That Narayan is the avatar of Krishna, rather than Krishna being the avatar of Narayan. So that was a huge. That's the centerpiece in terms of philosophy of Gaudiya Vaishnavism. That's the Paribas Sutra of the Bhagavatam. Krishna's two Bhagavan Swayam, the key by which the whole 
um, of the philosophy can be uh, the treasure of the philosophy can be unlocked. Um, Krishna says something like that in the Gita: "Aham sarvasya prabhavo matasarvam pavartate iti matvabhajantemambudapavasamangvitasa." Knowing me, basically saying as the source of everything, then you get in the right position to do the kind of bhakti that by which you can come to me in intimacy. It's basically what he says there. Was that what time exactly? Was that Madhvacharya that introduced it as a as a common thing? Ramanuj, right? No, uh, Madhva didn't introduce that. So it was Madhva speaks against that conclusion. Actually, we're the Gaudiya Madhva. Madhva Gaudiya, <laughs> Brahma Madhva Gaudiya, Sampradaya, but there are some um, major points of difference between in in philosophy between uh, Madhva and um, and Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's Achinti Beda Beda. So was Chaitanya and his. Yeah, they did it. Yeah, they 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 stake their claim on this, and uh, on one one line, one one leg, one pada, one one line of one verse in the Bhagavatam and, and built a whole um, school um, around that. Uh, so it was a controversial point um, at the time of uh, forming our Sampradaya. Um, and then to add to that, that Chaitanya Mahaprabhu is, is Krishna as well, was their um, next kind of step in that direction, two, two steps. Um, of starting the, the whole Sampradaya. I should mention, I suppose, that um, while it's important, certainly, to understand the Gaudiya conclusions on so many issues, and, um, and we have a distinct school of Vedanta, uh, it differs as is coming up from other schools of Vedanta, even other Vaishnava schools, even other Vaishnava schools that we have some direct uh, connection with, as the Godis have a direct connection with the Madhvas and so forth, and the variations or the differences are striking sometimes when you look at them in terms of philosophy. Um, we're going to talk on Sharanagati, I guess, in a few days. It, it comes up there, the difference in the Ramanuja's perspective on that and the Godis and so forth. And so, well, I guess what I want to say about that is that it's while it's important to know this, this, the, the uh, teachings of the school that we're in, and that will help us to pursue the, uh, the practice that the school recommends, um, thereby that we may more readily achieve the goal, the ideal. At the same time, all of these philosophical uh, schools their philosophy is really an attempt to put into words and logic and reasoning uh, and with scriptural support to explain revelation um, as best it can be explained with words and logic and reasoning and it it transcends that so they're limited and there are while there are very striking differences you'd be surprised at some of the differences um, each school is 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 taking their students to Vaikuntha. <laughs> so, have you heard someone in the Gaudiya Sampradaya say something, for example, that's a tenet of the Ramanuja Sampradaya? You'd say he was an 
in Maya, you know, and he, he's off or whatever. He doesn't know the Siddhanta. He might not know the Gaudiya Siddhanta. He might be wrong about that, and he should if he's a Gaudiya. But how wrong it is, is in a bigger picture, is, is probably better stated as, from our perspective, the Gaudiyas explain it better or talk about it more completely or... At least we feel that's why we're in, we're in the school and so forth. So uh, that will help. I think that kind of insight will help us um, to avoid falling into a kind of a um, uh, unproductive or counterproductive situation wherein we want to establish the sedant or have, having a discussion with someone in our own sect, uh, and so there's one I want to say is there is some relativity to the explanation, so it's you can lighten up a little bit sometimes and let people if, if they'll if they'll go on based on this understanding, it's not too bad. We can let them go forward perhaps and and hope that they'll understand more clearly uh, in, in in the future. We can drive people away and harden our own hearts in the name of. You know, establishing the the Siddhanta. and I'm pretty you know bent on doing that. So for that, hear that coming from me. Uh, that uh, if you know me, it uh, it's, it's saying a lot. So anyway, controversial points um, of philosophy can help us. If we we should try to understand what the saints have said and what they mean by what they said and the spirit of it and so on and so forth and. It's a good and important exercise, but we can go too far with it because you're not going to go back to Godhead uh, just by understanding the Siddhanta, I mean, between your ears. As much as you understand, will really be understood by how much you are, are, are practicing. Hmm? So we can, should get enough Siddhanta, enough philosophy. We should, we should exercise our head to soften our heart, that's the ideal. And in the context of exercising our head, our heart is becoming hard, then we're, we're doing it in a counterproductive way. So, um, Gopal had asked me if he could ask a question first, so what's your question? Uh, in uh, <laughs> Yeah. Prabhupada's commentary um, on verse 5, he says that um, a neophyte Vaishnava or Vaishnava situated on the intermediate platform can also accept disciples. But such disciples must be on the same platform and it should be understood that they cannot advance very well toward the ultimate goal of life under his insufficient guidance. Therefore, a disciple should be careful to accept an Uttama Adhikari as a spiritual master. So can you explain um, how one understands the uh, the adhikari of the the guru and? Uh huh. Yeah, um, that's a good, uh, very nice point that Prabhupada is raising. He's basically um, telling us the kind of the bare minimum level if you will, that 
of a, of a, of a, of a, of a guru whom we should accept, an Uttamanikar is kind of like the minimum, um, we'll probably think of it as highest or something like that. But it's, it's basically the minimum level. Uh, there are, well, there are Kanishta Kanishtas and Madhyam Kanishtas and Uttam Kanishtas and there are Kanishta Madhyams and Madhyam Madhyams and Uttam Madhyams and then there are Kanishta Uttams and Madhyam Uttams and Uttam Uttams. So, you all understand the terms, right? Yeah. yeah. So, uh, the, you know, the neophyte, the intermediate and the advanced. So there are many shades of, of gray in there. So just to say Uttamadakari is not to say an, an Uttam Uttam or a, a Madhyam Uttam. That's even higher. So basic level. That's uh, But also the important... Uh, what I mean by that is, is that... Um, is that uh, this? Um, we would do well then to understand what an uttamadikari is, and that's kind of your question. So we can latch our, attach ourselves to a good uh, a good guide, um, and uh, such descriptions are there, tangible ones, ones that we can actually um, see. Um, and have direct experience of. Rupa Goswami defines Uttamadikari in Bhakti Rasamrita Sindhu. And what he's defining there is, there's two things, Uttam Bhagwat, Uttam Adhikari. So, Adhikari means eligibility. So, to be eligible to tread the path of Uttam Bhakti, in Uttam sense, in the highest sense of the term, to be most equipped to tread the path, hmm, who is so equipped, so suited, hmm, that is an Uttamadikari. So what I mean is that we should, to use Prabhupada's term Uttamadikari, we should find a guru who is at least very equipped to follow the path. Uttamadikari is described as the person who has the greatest capacity to pursue the, the, the ideal. That is the person whose bhakti, which is the pursuance of the ideal, is most well informed. Shraddha, right, faith, if you will, is what enables us to embark upon the path. It's not a unique thing in one sense to bhakti because if you have faith in the karma mark, then you'll you'll tread that mark. If you have faith in the gyan mark, then you'll tread that path. If you have faith in bhakti mark, then sarva dharman pratta jamamika, sharanam braja. You won't have faith in these other paths, and you'll take shelter of Krishna and so on. So, at the same time, that faith may be may be tender, it may be firm. And it may be firm and well informed. So Uttamadikari is one whose faith is prodha shraddha, whose faith is deep, and what uh, shastro yukte chanipuna sarvata 
Dhrdhanishchaya, Rupa Goswami says, his or her faith is deep and it's well-informed means that Uttam Adhikari knows the scripture very well. He's very well acquainted with the Shastra. You see, faith to tread the path of bhakti means faith in Shastra, faith in the argument of Shastra, faith in, in revelation, faith in the idea that comprehensive knowing will be arrived at. Hmm? Um, perfect knowing by a perfect means. There are imperfect means for knowing and then there's, uh, there are maybe perfect means for knowing. We say that the senses, the mind, intellect are imperfect means of knowing. Reasoning and sense perception are imperfect. We can't arrive at perfect knowledge by them alone. We, we can arrive at some knowledge, some perfect knowledge in a sense, but not perfect in a comprehensive sense. Knowledge that is perfect in a comprehensive sense is knowledge that satisfies us, that fulfills us, that engages us as much as all action is informed by some knowledge in such a way that we become fully happy. See, ayatma, suprasediti, this is what Bhagavatam is about. That by which one will become the atma, the atma become fully satisfied. Atma means body, Atma means mind, Atma means intelligence, Atma means soul, Atma means paramatma. Hmm? This is what Bhagavatam is about. That by which every sense of the term self, Atma, will be fully satisfied. Hmm? And that is bhakti. Sabai pumsam parodharma yato bhakti yatma so, faith means faith in revelation, faith in that, that a perfect means of knowing. What I mean by that is that our means of knowing, independently of bhakti, is a kind of um, forward outreach. Uh, by acquiring, we will know, by the power of reasoning, we will know kind of a, rather than a descending method of knowing it, an ascending, ascending method, ascending on the strength of our material assets. We have acquired material assets, intelligence, senses, and so physical ability, mental and intellectual prowess, and so forth. These are, of course, acquired from the field of imperfection. So they are not perfect instruments then for, for perfect knowing. Um, people will say, well, you need to use your senses and your mind to understand the bhakti or understand the scripture. So, gotcha. But it's not like that because the idea is in bhakti is that we engage our senses in bhakti or bhakti, I should say, engages our senses and our intellect also becomes engaged by bhakti. So they're not independently engaged as a means of knowing. They're being engaged by the descent of bhakti. And so we don't use our mind, we don't use our senses in that sense, if you will. We allow them to be used by bhakti. 
we take the argument from the, from the scripture that's given to us by our charges with their commentaries and so forth, and then we, we apply our intellect to that. That's called Shastrayute. So the Uttamadikari is expert in this. Not Kevalyukti. Yukti means reasoning. Kevalyukti means like the Western world of philosophy that detached itself at a certain point from revelation. There was a point in, in, in Western history that um, philosophy was a kind of a, a minor um, uh, child of, uh, of theology. It was a small thing. It was, and gradually then, for different reasons, reason began to rise. And, um, and revelation took a kind of a, started to take a back seat. You know, there was, there was the revelation in the, in the West of Christianity I'm talking about. And so there was the faith in that, and, and they didn't reason about it too, too, you know, too much in relation to other evidences and so on and so forth. And some findings of writings of Aristotle came to light that hadn't been found before, and so then they had to like, wait a minute, this is, what he's saying here is true, we have to look at our faith in, in, in relation to this, and they started to reason, and so on, and then there was the Protestant Revolution, and so forth as well, and so eventually, anyway, with material successes, progress, um, conveniences, comforts, and, and, and tangible material progress, Revelation took a back seat, and faith and philosophy became unhinged from, from Revelation, and then it's just unbridled kebaliukti. People just think about it as from whatever way you want and however, and come up with ideas and think your way into understanding, intellectualize your way into understanding the nature of whatever it is uh, we're involved in. So this is a different means of going about knowing than applying your intellect to in our case, the Eastern Revelation that, of course, precedes the Western Revelation, the form of the Upanishads, and you know, as it comes down the Bhagwat and and, uh, and the books of our Goswamis, we call them our Shastra Gurus because they gave us the Bhakti Shastras. It means they they extracted from the whole corpus, whole canon of of Vedic uh, revelation those texts that were the heart, and they put emphasis on it in such a way that it hadn't been done before, like the Bhagavat, Srimad Bhagavatam, for example. So we use our intelligence in relation to what's being said there, how it's being said, what's the context, what the commentators, our saints have said about it, and so forth. This is a very different exercise of intelligence than intelligence exercised unhinged from Revelation, Kebal Yukti, so Rupa Goswami calls it Shastra Yukti. Hmm? There's a place for using, using your reasoning, and therefore there are different arguments. There, are, there, there's, there's again, there's some, there's some room within what is, what is Siddhanta. There's, there's, there's a stepping out beyond those boundaries, but there's room for differences. And the differences are the beauty, of course, of Gaudiya Vaishnavas. I was speaking about this, if you don't mind going off a minute here with, uh, with some of the, the devotees on the way up here about Hinduism and how Hinduism, 
course, this probably used to tell us it's a, you know this title that was imposed upon what he called Sanatana Dharma, but the basic India, the religious India, the mother you know country, the mothership of of, of religion, uh, has all these different reactions to revelation. Hmm? Because they're all different reactions to revelation and they're supported, in a sense, by the revelation. They all kind of got along on some level with one another. It's a rather kind of inclusive group of, of people, but they, they don't have one spokesperson. It's not like that is the Pope of Hinduism. Hinduism is a name that the Westerners put on to try to label the thing and give it, you know, control it, measure it, uh, and, and so forth. Something that escapes that by its very nature. And Gaudi Vaishnavism is really very much the same way. It's, you know, Bhakti Sansosi Thakur tried to institutionalize it, create an institution, and, and he did, and had a, it has a good, that was a good idea, and he gave reasoning for it. He also talked about how, you know, it might not be a good idea. It might prove to be, you know, less than useful at a certain point. That's also possible. Hmm? He was quite open about that. And Prabhupada, of course, followed in his footsteps and formed his institution and so forth. You get this kind of idea that if you have this big institution, then you can have a big impact in the world, if that's what you want to do, for a good cause here. Let's say, go to Vaishnavism. So you got one big group, they represent Gaudiya Vaishnavism. They're a voting block, you know. So the politicians are going to cater to you, and you're going to say, "We want this," you know. We want, you know, animal slaughter to be stopped, you know, uh, and so forth. So there's that's kind of, the, as far as I can tell, the reasoning behind having a big institution. That, of course, in the idea that there's strength in numbers and for your own practice and so forth. Hmm? But it's you know you have to look at it and see if it's it's working or to what extent, and also you have to look at the fact that Hinduism and Gaudiya Vaishnavism, as well if not more, kind of lends itself doesn't lend doesn't lend itself to institutionalization. It has a one philosophy, Siddhanta. Even within that, there's room for nuances, and you can find Baladev has explained this verse of the Gita like this, and his his predecessor. Vishwanatha has explained it differently, and they've said opposite about it. You know, they've shown how it, it can, their opinions can be supported by the scripture. So even in the context of the one, the 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 obeyed, the non-difference of the beta obey, which is the philosophy, there's some some room. Well, to speak of in the bade, the difference side of the equation, bade obeyed, hmm? you know, to go to the highest level. It's expressed the philosophy as Sakya, as Madhurya, as Vatsalya. On a lower level, it's addressed in terms of, well, in Prabhupada's terms, he didn't want, for example, what um, centralization of the temples he wanted. That means the devotees have freedom of expression. One time I was in Vrindavan and I heard that Prabhupada was going to cook that day. So I went down to see him, and, Prabhupada, and he was taking a massage. And Prabhupada said, I said, Prabhupada, I heard you were going to cook today, so I wanted to come down and assist you in cooking, because I never had, you know, experience of, of, of that. Kind of bold of me, but, and Prabhupada said, no, he said, they're cooking, fine, you know. 
no problem. Why should I cook? And so I don't know where I heard that, but <laughs> so uh, he said, "Anyway, you said." And and so we chatted, and and he told me uh, I had taken sannyas just uh, you know not long before that, and so I was a new sannyasi. It's like 1975 or something like that. And and Prabhupada said, "I couldn't cook with wood," he said, and he was talking about living in the forest, just cooking with wood and. Like maybe he's telling me, don't be so concerned about cooking, you know, where, you know what you're going to eat. I don't know. But anyway, as we were talking, then uh, Gopa Vrindapal, a godbrother of ours, uh, as many of you may know or know of, Mupakriti's husband, who uh, we, we kind of grew up together in Los Angeles, he came in because he heard the trip Rymarsh had gone in to see Prabhupada. <laughs> so, so he thought he'd go in and he had something he wanted to talk to Prabhupada about, about book distribution. So Prabhupada entertained his questions, and he said that, Prabhupada, uh, I wanted to form a system so to train all the devotees exactly what to say when they're preaching and selling books, because sometimes the devotees say embarrassing things and so forth. And and so he kind of ran this idea by Prabhupada, and Prabhupada said, it is a little artificial. And then Gopavrita Paul, he said, well, you know, Tamal Krishnamar said that you had said that uh, you know, all the devotees should be collecting a certain amount, and he said that is that is not that is Tamal Krishnamarsh. I have never said that. And he <laughs> had to give him these quotas, you know. So they, it was a way of like organizing and con- kind of controlling the thing, which you know has its merit, certainly, but to a point, and it can be counterproductive. So Prabhupada said it is a bit, you know, he insisted it's a bit artificial. He said just like. Archer Primrush, you know, he's going out, so many things he's saying, Krishna's giving him inspiration in the heart, and the books are selling, and so preaching has to come from the heart, it's a, some free expression, and, and if they're sincere, they maybe make some mistake, but then they'll correct themselves, something like that. So he, the point being only, he encouraged this kind of freedom of expression, this is kind of how he ran his mission. He thought, in the beginning, he said, I gave out the holy name as an experiment to see what would happen. And so things happened. Devotees came back and said, we should have a temple in San Francisco. So Prabhupada said, oh, Krishna must be you know, telling us we should have a temple in San Francisco. So he sent some devotees there. You know the famous story of when Tamal Krishnamurti was sent to China and he said that Prabhupada, Prabhupada was, wanted to change his service and he said, Prabhupada, I might as well go to China. For, you know. And Prabhupada said, Yes, Krishna has said, <laughs> we need a temple in China, and you will be the one. <laughs> so he kind of ran the mission like with a lot of trust in Harinam, and the sincerity of those who were applying themselves in relation to it. And um, so, you know, he used to say that the movement will be run on love and trust. So there's a lot of openness and freedom of expression, and he wanted to stimulate that. I, I well, use myself as another example, just before I took sannyas, I was called into the GBC meeting, and they and they said, "Who is your GBC?" And I said, "I don't know." <laughs> and I thought about it for a minute, and I said, "It was Karunder, but he blooped." And uh, then they kind of got embarrassed from that. But I had been sent to Australia from Los Angeles, and then and Prabhupada invited me to, to India for the first like Mayapur festival from Australia. And while I was there, Karunder had left, and when I went to Mayapur, Prabhupada spoke to me, he said, you know, you should come once a year, spend one month with me, and the rest of the year go and preach. And so I got up this preaching idea, and I met with Ramaswar, who came to the festival, and we, you know, devised this idea to come up with this traveling 
book distribution party at different airports and things like that. And I just went and I, I did it. So this was a year later. The GBC called me in and said, who's your GBC? You're going around everywhere, you know, selling books and collecting money and sending it all to the BBT. And, you know, we'd like some of it to come to one of our zones or, or something like that. So we might have a say in how it might be spent. So I, I said, well, you know, I don't know. But uh, I guess it was Karunder, but he left because he had left the mission. So they said, well, you've got to have a GBC. I said, oh, that's okay. That's fine. I didn't. I didn't have any problem with that. I just hadn't thought about it. It wasn't the big thing that it, you know, in in a mission in those days, as it as it might be in that, that mission today. I don't know, but I've been a member for a while. But at any rate, <laughs> I've been around, so <laughs> you do hear things. But <laughs> but um, uh, you know, it's another point to illustrate. They, 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 so anyway, they went to the they had they made the resolutions, and then they used to read them before property used to allow them to have three days to meet, discuss, and then they would read the resolution. So they came to my name and they said, Tripari Das, and Prabhupada said, what has he done? And, um, and they said, well, Prabhupada, he doesn't have a GBC. And Prabhupada said, he does not need a GBC. He's, he's selling the books. <laughs> you know, you're supposed to manage in such a way that this kind of thing happens, that people know what to do. And they, they spontaneously go out and they, you know, they, they, they serve and so forth. And so some of the three of those GBC members, they came and told me that because I wasn't there. So they came and told me this is what Prabhupada said. And we apologized. I said, oh, you don't have to apologize, you know. I saw that in memory. The Prabhupada never came I told you before. <laughs> okay. So, you know, it just illustrates a point that um, how Prabhupada wanted to have a kind of a decentralized management so to, to help to, uh, to up to facilitate the individual expression uh, and so forth. But he wanted a centralized book publishing so that the books would all be authorized. This is the philosophy and so forth. So the expression, which was individual, would come out of the one hmm, philosophy rather than the expression would become a different philosophy. That would then be a problem. Hmm? But there's room and for and, and, and beauty to a philosophy that lends itself to a variety of uh, expressions. Ultimately, as I say, Sakya, Vatsalya, Madhurya, and none of these can stand alone. You cannot have Radha and Krishna's Parakya Bhav and Vrindavan unless there's opposition, unless there's some supporting friends, and, and so on and so forth. So it's all together. That's when Radha met with Krishna in Kurukshetra, and he said, well, why don't you come with me you know, to Dwarka? She said, I oh, know, I want you in my mind is Vrindavan. I want you in Vrindavan, where there's the Jamuna, where there's Govardhan, where there's your friends, your parents, and all these things. Because the implication philosophically, theologically, is all these things are necessary for that part of the it's, it's, it's a composite. Hmm? So, uh, so, so, some, some, so, Gaudiya Vaishnavism, like Hinduism, more so, it kind of uh, works against institutionalizing. You know, Prabhupada had kind of a really a, a sim- 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 simple but beautiful and charming idea of rules, like I said, love and trust, meet for three days, you know, talk about uh, you know, outreach and so forth and, and, uh, and, and practice. And and in today's world, you know, it's, it's big organizations that, that, that progressive people fear. 
they they won't they they look for local growth you know local eating local local agriculture local in manufacture is it made at proper village okay you know i'll buy it you know rather than somewhere else this has you know, the, uh, this is like the wisdom of the day right to move away from the 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 uh, specialization um, um, corporate rule and, uh, and and so forth and reinvent the the whole person you know where you you have to know something about weather you have to know something about how food grows how cows eat or about a little bit about of everything to live rather than you just know one thing and everybody else does the other things and and you become an incomplete person on the human level um, so people are moving away from that. They're moving away from that kind of. Uh, they're afraid of the big, the big group. So you know, maybe some place for moving in another. Uh, I say that because I have a small group, so <laughs> no, for moving in a different uh, direction, or at least we should move in a direction of facilitating individuality and and encourage that and so forth. But again, such that it remains within the philosophy. So we need good guidance. We need a guidance by someone, as Prabhupada is saying there, who knows the scripture. Shastra Yukte Junipuna. Nipuna means it means actually means genius. Nipuna. <laughs> so who 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 can use, employ logic and reasoning well in relation to the revelation, who has a feeling for that and can make sense out of that, and uh, and and as Prabhupada used to like to train us to make points that, that can be supported then with with scripture and so forth. So he or she, the Uttam Adhikari, is 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 expert in this kind of logic, Shastra Yukti, not Kevul Yukti, Shastra Yukti, and it means also Shastra Nipun, who knows that. The texts very well. Shabde parechanishnatam brahmani upashamasraya, you know. Samatpani shrutriyam brahmanishtam, these ideas, shrutriyam, well versed in the, in the, in the argument of revelation. It's like a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, the revelation is such a nice idea, really. It gets a bad name. The name is almost like you use the word revelation, you get a little nervous, so like, I'm going to turn people off here, revelation. But it's a beautiful idea. I like to think of it something like this, that Puja Padashita Maharaj used to say that Om is a big affirmation. Om. So it's a big yes. This is the first word, first Om, syllable, the one word syllable of from from the other side. Revelation says Om, and it's a yes. So then the question is, well, what was the question? (laughs) <laughs> right, because the answer is yes. So uh, the uh, <laughs> the question is: human life is a question. Hmm? Human life is an existential question. That's what it is. It's a huge existential question. All of the forms of life are, are don't constitute an existential question. They all constitute how questions. They are there in those forms of life. Consciousness is much more tied to nature, 
So the questions that arise are all in relation to nature, and nature answers them. How to eat, how to sleep, how to mate and defend. It's all answered for every species by nature. But the other less complex species don't have the question, why? You know, and the headache that comes with, why? I feel that there's more, and that I am more. Why do I feel like What is the meaning? What is the purpose? I feel there's got to be more to it than what meets the eye. And Shastra is saying, yes, there is. It's over here. Om, this come in this way, and you will find the more that you are. Hmm? So it's a very, it's a very, it's a very beautiful thing. I mean, it, this, it, this human life is this crisis, and of course, if we are too, uh, if we if we don't tie our intellect to revelation and and, our, and pursue our inquiry in relation to that sound then we come up with you know some of the modern theories that do away with the existential question by saying there are no why questions there are only how questions this is a misfiring or you know it's a trick of the brain that makes you think that you are uh, these are modern arguments in, in neuroscience and so forth we're just everything is determined there's no free will there's no soul there's no there's, there's something called consciousness, but it's just here today and gone tomorrow like everything else. And These are very depressing theories uh, for, for most people, and nobody can practice them. Nobody, even those that espouse them, cannot practice them. Even in the context of espousing them, they're really pursuing the meaning, the no meaning, you know, meaning of life. So it's very counterintuitive. It can't be practiced. And um, and we can reason that that kind of reasoning is tied to the um, the identification with uh, with matter with with how questions and uh, an an inordinate uh, an unbecoming uh, preoccupation with how questions unbecoming. Do you understand? To be so preoccupied with how to eat, how to sleep, how to mate, how to defend, that we can't even do them right. We can't even figure them out. Every other species figures it out very easily. Nature has answered. We're, we put all our energy into that, and then we philosophize away the why question and the, the existential crisis by just saying, we're animals, hmm? we're robots, although we can't really act like that practically we don't you know we choose we think we do we act as if we choose and we have choices and it's just it's just some kind of idle as probably would call it armchair philosophy and you know there's some empiric evidence that they that they try to support it on but it's a leap of faith to make a conclusion like that a huge huge leap of faith so we have a different approach and revelation that the word becomes beautiful when we think of it like this and so we hear Om, it's yes, and we realize I've asked a question, I am asking a question, I'm a question personified, and here's the answer. And so we enter into a dialogue then with Revelation. It's a conversation, really. Probably just to say they're the law books, right? And that gives you this like, yeah, it's black and it's white, these are the laws. And that's true, and that's settling in a way, 
But that's kind of the Kanishtadikari settling where, you know, first you learn, oh, you don't have to think. All the answers are right here. That's comforting. Hmm? But then, you know, something comes up, right? Like it does in the world. Somebody did this, and you think, well, what does the law say about that? All the law books are there, but what does it say about that? What's the meaning? How do we apply it in this instance? So suddenly it becomes gray again. It becomes dynamic. It becomes exciting. What's the excitement of being a lawyer? I don't know, but you know, I guess it's like... One thing about being a lawyer that's interesting is when they... Anybody a lawyer? <laughs> in law school, I learned... I didn't go to law school, but I learned... <laughs> I didn't go to any school, but I learned that... Well, <laughs> I learned that well, high school, but uh, I learned that in law school, they teach the, the, the law students have to take courses on poetry, on reading and interpreting poetry, hmm? which sounds, of course, very different from law, right? So that they can learn to look at the law in a in a poetic way and find nuanced meanings and stretch it and apply it and so forth because. The nature of reality is such, hmm? and if you want to, if you want to bring rule at all, any rule, any order, any law, to to a world that defies law and measurement, hmm? reality does, ultimate reality defies measurement, rule, and so forth. Then you have to make kind of be creative about that and stretch it, and the rules are are. You know, they're principles. They're 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 not. The laws can change. The principles are there, so it becomes more more loose, more free, more more open. You cannot contain the whole thing. So in bhakti, we we eventually find that out too, because something happens. We thought we had all the answers, and then you know, Prabhupada left or something. <laughs> Then people are making up all kinds of answers, what to do, how to solve the situation, the, the, the vacuum that's created, or whatever, whatever may be the case. Or new things come up in society, right? Hmm? Your friend, your, 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 your devotee son um, uh, tells you he's gay. Then what do you got? You know, and you used to think about it differently, perhaps. Right? It happens, you know. So, um, so then you know, look at the thing again, and... Uh, so this is life, right? This is what we're involved in. It's not something that's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. And the books aren't like that either. They are the books of life, and they have to... So with good guidance, what we find, Uttamadikar is someone who can tread the path very well, means he or she can do this with the scripture. Understand the scripture well, can reason about it, and knows the knows it, you know, literally and, and um, whatever, poetically or has a feel for that. Uh, so uh, this means to be well-informed. Drudanishchaya, Sarvataha Drudanishchaya. He or she is very um, firmly kind of fixed in Sarvata, in, 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 in entirety. It means he or she has studied the Sambandha, the Tattva, the, 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 um, the Abhidheya, the means, the goal, prayogen, well versed in all all aspects of the of, of 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 the doctrine, this person and that person's faith will be deep because it's well informed theoretically. This is only talking about a. Per- That's why I say this is the minimal level. 
<laughs> this is talking about a person who's theoretically very well informed, a little more than that, because they have some 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 genius to make sense out of it all, draw out meanings that you couldn't draw out of it, uh, and uh, from the same verse and so forth, and apply it and know that it's also in this book and half of it's in that book and it was put together like this by this acharya here. That's why this verse is here. This is what it means here. This is what it means over here. This means samatpani shrutriyam. And such a person has, we hope, brahmanishtam, whose whose bhakti is well informed by the scriptural argument, is best suited to practice. And of course, we're all practitioners, always, forever. Such is the nature of bhakti. We're all students forever. Prem is full and ever-increasing at the same time. So we have to be realize that we are embracing these kind of contradictions in spiritual life. They're the, uh, the mind-splitting, you know, taking you beyond your need to control and label and fully understand the fist of your hand, everything, and make it less than you, at which point no longer helps you. This becomes a tool for you to think you're more important uh, than you are. It should change you, right? We should use our head, as I said, to soften our hearts. Uttam Adhikari is a person who's like this, who's well-informed. This means the person who's best suited to tread the path. Hmm? We should have as our guru, Prabhupada, saying. It means the path is based on faith, right? And faith in revelation, faith in that argument. Faith in a perfect way of knowing that by using my imperfect instruments unto themselves, I cannot arrive at perfect knowing. Therefore, I fold my hands. This is the perfect way of knowing. And if the infinite wants the finite to know, that's perfect knowing. Out of its infinite capacity, then what it can it can make that which would otherwise be perhaps we could say mathematically impossible. Hmm? So uh, so one who who has embraced this perfect means of knowing means they have faith in revelation, in the scriptural argument. Therefore, one who is well-versed in that is most suited to guide us. <laughs> That's what our faith is in. That's the root in Vadivakti, the root that, that, that gives rise to the flower and, uh, and fruiting of our practice is faith in scripture, in revelation. Shastriya shraddha. That does, that's why I probably should say it's not just a sentiment, not just a belief. Hmm? Right? It's faith in something that's, that's a pretty good you know, argument. Uh, and it's well thought out, it's all written down, you know, there's more to be written. But um, so, so therefore, we will best be facilitated in pursuing our faith in Shastra in conjunction with someone who is very well versed in that, who has deep faith in that, who has scriptural genius. So this is why I say this is the beginning. There's another thing called Uttambhakta, which talks about levels of realization. We've talked about thus far levels of, of eligibility to tread the path. There's the, there's the Kanishta Adhikar who has Komalshad, tender faith. Hmm? It can he can be overwhelmed by or she can be overwhelmed by arguments 
opposing arguments and have doubts and they come back, you know, somehow they come back, but uh, their, their faith is weak. Then there's the intermediate person in terms of capacity to tread the path whose faith is strong, must have some experience, right? That's what makes our faith strong, some experience, right? And, but then can't maybe give the answers to uh, challenges and doesn't know the scripture that well. And then the uttam adhikar. So these are three types of persons described in terms of comparative eligibility to tread the path. So we should also reason from this. It would be good for us to do one of two things or both things, to, to study the books, and Prabhupada was certainly fond of that idea. You know, he used to say, I wrote 60 books, and when, uh, when Ramaswar Prabhu first wrote to Prabhupada about me, that I had sold so many books, Prabhupada wrote back and said, that's very nice that Tripura Das is selling so many books, but you should make sure that he reads those books. Uh, yeah. Also, so I took that advice. <laughs> Seriously, but... Um, uh, Besides, as I say, the so what Prabhupada, you know, I know people use that, and Prabhupada said we should be careful to accept an Uttamadikari as a guru, and therefore no one should accept anyone with Prabhupada because obviously he's an Uttamadikari and nobody else is. And but if we go through the definition, as I say, Uttamadikari, we see it's it's they're applying it in a little bit of a wrong way for one thing, um, and. There is, of course, the Uttam Bhakta, where Bhagavatam speaks about three types of devotees in terms of their realization. But when the Uttam Bhakta, if you will, is talked about in terms of realization, the things that are described are invisible. You can't see them. He's seen Krishna in everything, everything in Krishna. <laughs> you know that. <laughs> Unless you're inside him and, you, and he shares that with you, 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 can't, you can't see that. Right? These are in. In, they're real. They're they're not. They're not. It's not a criterion hmm, by which we can that we can get a handle on and make make a make a make a judgment. It's a faith, of course. We decide. My guru has so much realization. I have faith in that, and so we honor the faith. Hmm? That's a faith argument. Prabhupada's the greatest. That's my faith, but <laughs> but I I admit his faith. You know. And of course, I can look objectively at his contributions and so forth, and I can make you know uh, make a nice case for he's he's great and so on. But other people can do that too, and I, I'm, I'm, and I, I hope so. Otherwise, why they've chosen that that person as their their guru? And of course, none of them that I know would would not say nice things about my guru as well about about Prabhupada. So um, yeah, it's kind of a statement that's often kind of mis mis. Uh, uh, misapplied, and it's a kind of a bullying, if you will, and it's not based on a very good understanding of even the term Uttamadikari as it's used classically. It, you know, if you want to talk about Uttam Bhagwat, the highest devotee, you know, he sees or she sees Krishna everywhere, everything in Krishna, so on, these type of descriptions. This is, as Prabhupada himself would readily say, this is not a platform for initiating because you have to discriminate. <laughs> To initiate, whether you understood what I'm saying, I have to discriminate. You have to come to that in Madhyam Bhakta, as described in Bhagavatam, is characterized by discrimination. At a certain point, discrimination 
will help to call our spiritual progress. As again, we said in the beginning, we'll be met with a controversy and we have to discriminate, we have to use our intelligence to think about it. The, 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 the Kanishtarikari doesn't like to think about all those things. Or, I gave it once a philosophical talk, and uh, after the talk, a fellow said, uh, "He said, Marge, why, what, whatever happened to just chant Hare Krishna? You know, I don't understand all this philosophy." And I said to him, "I don't know what happened. Why don't you just chant Hare Krishna? I see that you do all kinds of other things. Why don't you? Because I don't think you know the philosophy well enough that you, you know, bhakti is informed enough that you've been cornered." So to speak, by the knowledge, then it, that, that makes it difficult for you to, you know, go otherwise, do otherwise, to feel like a hypocrite, you know, if I do something else. And, and he wasn't, you know, that good of a follower. He wasn't, he wasn't initiated. And anyway, so, yeah, whatever happened? Why not chant Hare Krishna? Because you haven't heard enough philosophy, probably. <laughs> I went to Hawaii once, and they invited me for some people came and they said. Swami, we'd like to invite you for all night to Kirtan. I said, I don't know, I don't do that all so much. <laughs> all night to Kirtan. I said, will there be any talk? No, no, we don't allow any talks. I said, I'm definitely not coming then, you know. And of course, you know, they were staying up with help. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it wasn't by the strength of the chanting that they were they were staying up at night. There were other things that were augmenting the Kirtans, and it wasn't philosophy, so. Um, wow. So, you know, I wanted to talk there and kind of like give some, what is kirtan? You know, it's not just a musical expression and so forth. So, um, at any rate, Prabhupada would say that, that you know, for, for for preaching, one has to have some external consciousness. And Uttam Bhagavad is characterized by not having external consciousness. Can't discriminate. Even Chaitanya Dev himself, we know he's Uttam Bhakta or he represents the Uttam, Uttam Bhakta. But when he was in his Uttam expression, then he couldn't preach. He'd pass out. You know? Then he'd come back and say, why are you chanting like that, making that noise? I was with Krishna at Govardhan, and, and the gopis engaged me, and you made some noise. And he's talking to Srupadamata, who was chanting Hare Krishna, to wake him up, you know, he... He called the chanting, a, you know, a disturbance uh, from Sarupadamadar's mouth. So he was very utum, 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 and deeply. So that it means, you know, you 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 have the capacity to go into the to go into a trance, and that will be on different levels. At a certain level, you will you will be just taken into a trance by anything that possibly even doesn't doesn't overtly remind anyone of Krishna, but reminds. You of Krishna, that's the whole example of the rain. He saw the rain cloud. He fell. Hmm? Hmm. He's gone, he's gone in. And he comes out, he comes out to a platform of discriminating and so forth, the external consciousness. Then he can deal with the external world, do some preaching and so forth. There'll be lesser stages where, where for example, it, it, you have to be engaged in hearing Leela or something, and then you may tip off and and, and, and so on, rather than just anything that wouldn't normally even be thought of in relation to Krishna. And just you know, so uh, this is in any stage hmm, that one can tip into that side. This is this is a deep a devotee of deep uh, you know deep realization and, and experience and so forth. But 
that person will come, as Prabhupada used to say, to the Madhyam position for for preaching, come down for, or come out of it, however you you, you want to talk about it. Hmm? But um, a person who has the capacity to tip to that side, that will be a Mahabhagavata. Jiva Goswami speaks of three kinds of Mahabhagavatas. Pujapad uh, Sridharmarj gave a nice way of thinking about them. He called them three types of persons who have the capacity to to serve as a guru, not in terms of, not as Uttamadikari, but in terms of realization, not Adikari, but realization. He said, one guru has two feet in the spiritual world and extends one foot here. One has two feet here and extends one there. One has two feet here and his eyes are always there. Hmm? Uh, he drew this from, from really from Bhagavad Sandarbha of Jiva Goswami. Jiva Goswami gives technical terms. He says, Murchita Kashai, Nirduta Kashai, Bhagavad Praptadeha. Bhagavad Praptadeha means he has a spiritual body and he's appearing in the world in that spiritual body. That's like, you know, Rupa Goswami, Narada Muni, Narada Muni, Bajaya Vina, Radhika Ramana Nave. There he is. He got that Vina who's part of his spiritual body. He's, you don't see too many of those floating around. Uh, type of uh, type of devotees. We can look at our guru, I suppose, in terms of his practitioner's body, like Rupa Goswami's is a practitioner's body, a sadhakade, a perfected one, and think of it in that light. Hmm? But to be situated in one's spiritual body and appearing in a material world. Second level means one who is, you know, the, that's the one is two feet there, extends one foot here. Hmm? Second one's two feet here, extends one there. So hasn't isn't situated in their swarup, hmm? but is cultivating that internally and stepping there. And this is in, 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 in like in Bhav Bhakti. That's the that's the sadhana of Bhav Bhakti. Lower level still. Both feet here, right? Two eyes there means means no, nadanam nadanam nasundarim kovitam ba jagadishikami mama janmani janmarishwari babatad bhakti rai takitri ruchi nishta ruchi ruchi means he he go and he he can tilt to the other side he has taste she has a taste for bhakti no taste for anything else so you can trace that out a little bit and so forth. Hmm? But we should expect that anybody who has deep realization will be well acquainted with the scriptural argument as well. So that's more of a kind of a a what do you say road sign or something to look for. Once one of my godbrothers, that photographer Bar- Bhargava, he asked you much. Have you seen Krishna? I want to know. <laughs> and Sridhar Maharaj, you know, naturally kind of avoided the question. It's like a non-spiritual question because if I say yes, you'll say, huh, well, he's pretty proud. If I say no, you say, why should I listen to him? <laughs> you know, that's the kind of, kind of question it, it really is. So, at any rate, he kept pressing him and pressing him and pressing him. And he said, 
At any rate, he said, I would do not have the audacity to say that I've seen Krishna, but I will say that I've seen favorable signs along the road, and I'm encouraged by that, that he's nearby, you know, like, turn here, you know, he's over there, you know. So he was, you know, typically uh, humble about it, and he was being pressed in, in a way that was really inappropriate, but he was very tolerant and so forth, and that's how he... he uh, he answered. And you could also say, no, well, actually, have you seen Krishna? Well, I don't know, I wasn't looking. I wasn't trying to see Krishna. I was trying to serve Krishna. I've been looking for service. That's where I've been focusing. Hmm. Yes? They asked you a problem the same question. They said, would you believe me if I told you? <laughs> right, exactly. Would you believe me if I told you? It's a non-spiritual you know, question. It's a, so... What else? What's the time? Yes. What time do we start? We started. Okay. Something more? So, Maharaj, you know how um, Srila Prabhupada and even Lord Chaitanya, they um, warn against speaking and hearing like intimate pastimes. Um, and at the same time, those pastimes are so attractive, and um, what are we, are we supposed to like never speak about them in public, or, um, you know, like like they say, be very cautious, and what Chaitanya would engage in, Sankirtan, and in public, you know, here, he only heard about Pallad Maharaj, and Jiva Maharaj, and I don't know, so like, uh, when, is, when is it appropriate that we can... Well, I think the basic idea is that it, it, is that um, you, you want to share something with someone who has the capacity to take advantage of it, and so it's incumbent upon you to assess your your audience and whether by speaking about an aspect of Gaudiya Vaishnavism they'll be benefited by that, they'll appreciate that, or or they won't, um, and. Uh, uh, so anybody who's involved in outreach and so forth has to be a little, you know, you have to be conscious of your audience as best you can. You try to figure them out, and 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 you see, you you ask the question, you see the level of the interest and so forth, perhaps, and then you you go from there. Um, so that's the sensitivity that, a, that an effective kind of preacher, I guess, this is how you're talking about it, because you like to preach, has to have, has to cultivate. And that's why I like to say. Um, I, if the best way to preach is to listen. That's how I learned to preach. Because uh, I, mean, I didn't have any education. I just joined Prabhupada as a young guy, and, um, and I had no job, and I had no, no, no school, no training for anything. I wanted spiritual life, and I met Prabhupada, and that was it. And so then I, used, and I didn't know what to do with myself in the mission either. I didn't have any talents or anything, so I just had a habit of being able to, you know, like to talk to people, so I would. Those days, we just had a room full of books, and nobody knew what to do with them practically. So, I took some books out, and you know, and I would talk to people about them, and then I would listen to them. I'd say, "Where are you from?" And they tell me, "I'm from so and so." So I learned geography. You know, I met people from all over the world, and I'd say, well, "Where is that place?" I'm oh, kidding. What's it like down there? I mean, that's what I used to do. And then you know, then they would, then I would make a point. There would be a, a reply, and 
and I would learn about different fields, and I would listen, and I would listen to also for what they were about, what excited them, what was important to them, what was meaningful to them, and then I would try to. The task was well, it's got to be in the book, you know. <laughs> so, <laughs> show them how it's in it's in the book, and the book talks about that kind of thing actually. And then I would think it really does, you know, talk about it. Of course, you know what it meant to me, what it meant to them, you know. Was maybe there was a little separation there, you know. <laughs> but I wouldn't get excited about it. Yeah, the Bhagavatam is about that too, you know. <laughs> wow, you know. And, then I, <laughs> and so, but I would always listen to people. And, um, and uh, some, you know, I, I wouldn't just wait for them to stop talking so that I could jam them with my, you know, point. And then I would be sensitive to their sensibilities. And so when I try to meet them on their, their grounds and so forth. So I, I was successful in that. Um, kind of outreach, largely I felt because I would, I would listen to people, and I think they would, f- you know, they would feel that I was listening to them, and and sometimes I could say really beautiful things. Hmm? I mean, I would just listen to them and think that was really beautiful. I mean, you know, Krishna's just speaking through you. I remember sitting with one guy at the Washington D.C. airport in the morning. We'd go out early in the morning sometimes there, maybe on a Saturday or something, because it was busy a little for a little bit in the morning, and then of course it wasn't a business day, so it would slow down. I sat down, I was just in so much, uh, so blissful. I sat down next to this guy because I just didn't know what to do with myself. I was so just ecstatic with uh, you know, what, what, what we were you know, involved in and so forth. I sat next to this guy and so there I had this bag of books and he looked at me and I looked at him. So I just pulled it out and I gave it to him and I started talking. And I was just listening to myself talk. It was like a mini you know, Bhagavatam class. It was just so... I thought, wow, that was just so nice. He said, wow. He said, what did you say? <laughs> he said, that was incredible. I said, you know, we're just sharing it. I don't know. You know, it's like, yeah, that was incredible. And he, of course, he took the book, you know, and, uh, and uh, went home with it. Like, uh, I can't remember what I said, but it, you, know, you would say things sometimes like that. It would just be so, like, people would cry almost, you know, sometimes. You know, they would see you with tears in your eyes, thinking about what I'm doing if I just move a little bit in this way and then they take the book, how their life might change, you know, and they would feel that if you had that feeling for them and they would go, who are you? You know, what, what, are you, what is this? Kind of a thing. So, you know, again, um, you know, to out, make outreach to people, they're people. <laughs> you got you to treat them like people. Whatever faith they do have, it comes from Krishna anyway, right? He says he makes their faith strong. So you want to think about that. Why you just going to go pound it, you know, and smash it and so forth. You think, well, Krishna made it strong in them. Why? What is it? Why do they think like that? Why do they feel like, you know, you want to go inside of their head and really understand them. Hmm? And then, then you might get some insight yourself, that's, which is, and then you get inspiration to, you know, to, uh, to say something about your own teaching that you hadn't thought of before and it will be such that it will have some impact on them. So, you know, it's, you kind of have to, Gauge your audience, and no, it's not that you can never talk about these pastimes of Radha and Krishna. Like Prabhupada gave the Krishna book first, right before the whole Bhagavatam came out. And once I think Giraj Marsh asked Prabhupada, "What you know? You said you know you got to go through the first nine canons." He said something like, "Well, you got to give them a taste of what's to come, you know, or something like that, you know, a little you know hint of the of what's to come." So we sold so many Krishna books; they're all the pastimes of Krishna. I mean, there are more intimate, um, you know, conjugal pastimes and so forth. That, I mean, you, you, you use a little common sense, 
right? That's hard, I know, but you know, you have to do that. Think. Suppose um, your audience was very mixed. You know, like typically now at a Iskon temple, at a Sunday feast, we have some brand new people their first time, and then for old devotees, it's the only time they come on Sunday, so it's the only time they're hearing. You know, in in a, that kind of environment, of course, they're hearing at home. But you know, then what do you? Um, I've heard said you must always speak to the lowest denominator. You know what I mean? You must always speak to the newest person. But then the older devotees. I don't agree with that necessarily. Yeah. And I, I don't necessarily agree with that. Um, I think you have to determine where you'll have the greatest effect. I mean, uh, you could have, let's say you've got 30 new people you've never seen before, and you've got 10 devotees, like you say, who only come on Sunday. Hmm? And hopefully they're not just coming for the feast, the devotees, they, they actually want to hear something, you know, it's their temple and so forth. Well, you know, there's some reason, logic to the idea of speaking mostly to the ten devotees, because if those ten devotees could become really enthusiastic and nourished and so forth, you know, then what? Hmm? You, they will be in a better position to help you know, ten, ten, each one of them can help ten other people or something like that. So there's some, there's some wisdom to that. There, has some, there is sometimes a kind of a, I think, a, a penny-wise, pound-foolish kind of a policy, like, you know, you preach to the lowest common denominator and everybody's not getting nourished, so they're going away. Hmm? And, um, and then if, and, it, and it's harder to nourish them, so there, there may be some scope for that, uh, and it's not that the less informed won't, won't be benefited. They will be. Sometimes the example is given that if someone has um, dysentery, can't eat anything, you know, amoebic dysentery, badly, you can't keep anything down, you can't eat, sometimes the Ayurvedic doctor will prescribe a tablespoon of ghee, which is like, well, just vomited it up immediately. So what kind of advice is that? The idea is it's such concentrated food that if a tiny particle of it sticks, then some nourishment will come. So sometimes you give a very condensed, you know, that people can't digest. Somebody in the room can. Hmm? And you're seeing that and you're nourishing them. Other people can't digest it, but hmm, something is there. Hmm? They may just think, well, that was far. I don't know what he was ta- she was talking about, but she was into it. And uh, I never heard anything like that before. You know? mm-hmm. Bhakti said, you know, Dr. Kapoor, Prabhupada's godbrother, he told me personally his, his, his conversion story. And uh, I've told it before, but he, he was a Mayavadi. And so some of the, one of Prabhupada Bhakti's not such a doctor, Sanyasi, Sanyasi disciples had preached to him and couldn't quite convince him. He said, well, we'll, let us take, we'll take you to our guru, he can convince you. So they arranged an appointment with Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati Thakur to meet Dr. Kapoor, the young, the young Dr. Kapoor. And so he said, okay. And he sat in the room, and then Prabhupada Saraswati Thakur came in the room by himself, sat down, and there at closed the door, there was Dr. Kapoor and Bhakti Siddhanta. And he said, he said that Prabhupada just spoke for 45 minutes about the Brajlila. Hmm? He never asked said one word about Mayavad, never said anything, asked me if I could, any questions or anything. He spoke for 45 minutes and walked out. 
And I was just so like amazed at he's so into that. There must be more to it than what the Maya bodies say, you know what he, you know. And then so he wanted he joined on, he said. And he said he traveled for six months. He had the opportunity to travel for six months with Sarsri Thakur's preaching. And after every lecture, Prabhupada would say, Are there any questions? And Dr. Kapoor would raise his hand. And Bhaktisanda would just look right at him and ignore him. <laughs> no questions. And after that six months, for the purpose of some seva, Dr. Kapoor found himself in some city, I don't know where, and the king, because there's still kings, you know, in India at the time, the king of the area was in town, or, or, the, or the, the, at the king's palace, the, one of the four Shankaracharyas, was visiting the town. So he was being hosted and giving discourses on Advaita, on, 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 on Mayavad. And so Dr. Kapoor went. He thought, wow, he was, you know, I get to meet one of the four Shankaracharyas. I'm a Bhakta now. I think I am. And, and I, you know, I, I wanted to be able, you know, I, I wanted to be intellectually, logically, you know, convinced that I'm attracted to this, but Sarsi Thakur never answered my questions, really. So, Anyway, he went, and then there was the questions from the Shankar. Anyone have any questions? Oh, you know, I mean, these are big people in India. You know, there's four of them. They ride on elephants at Kumbh Mela and so forth. So, Bhakti, Dr. Kapoor asked him a question, and then he answered. Then Dr. Kapoor said, "Yes, but." He went back and forth like this, and Dr. Kapoor said, "He said he looked and he saw. At a certain point, he had him. He knew what to say, and he knew." I've got him here, because he, he in Dr. Kapoor's words, he, he changed the ground. There's two grounds in Advaita, you know, there's the part of the empiric world that's not real, but neither are your dreams, but you feel they're real, right? So that's how they talk about the material world. And then there's the real world, the Paramarthic world. So they were talking on the Paramarthic level, and then he answered the question on the Vyavaharic or empiric level. So Dr. Kapoor was about to say, yes, but you've changed the ground. And he would have been defeated. And it was getting tense. And he, he knew he had a chance, and he looked over and he said, the palace guards had put their hands on their swords. <laughs> you know, like, if he could have, he would have embarrassed this man. This, this is the king's, you know, guru, and one of the Shankaracharyas. It might have been off with his head. So he just, he stopped. And he, but he realized that he got all this from you know, association, and so that, it, that he had the arguments, he had the reasons, uh, you know, even though he hadn't been able to debate it and so forth with, with his guru. Or, so, <laughs> so anyway, hmm, there's, um, I think there's, uh, there's, it is a difficult question how to, you know, too high for some, too low for others, that's always a problem. So you want to try to talk in such a way the nice thing, Giriraj Marsh once asked me that, you know, Giriraj Marsh, you've been doing some service with him. He was a follower of uh, Narayan Marsh at one point. And so he and some others, um, this is before there was a rift between Iskon and, and Narayan Marsh. And, and so he came to me and he said, You know, you're a follower of Sridhar Marsh, and, uh, and uh, my question to you is, how. Narayana speaks to us about higher topics, and then we talk about that to other devotees, and they get confused and stuff, and it's a problem for us. And uh, that's what he told me. And he said, so how did Sridhar Marsh talk about higher topics to you in such a way that it didn't 
filter down and devotees got misunderstandings and it was a problem. And I said, well, actually, he talked about, he didn't so much talk about higher topics. He was real tasteful in that. But he talked about the lower topics in the highest way. Hmm? So that is a way, if you will, to satisfy the older devotees and the younger devotees. There's very beautiful and high ways that you can talk about. I mean, after all, unless you've realized it, or even if you have, the basic difference between the body and the soul, there are beautiful ways to talk about it. Or there's a boring way. You're not the body! You know, and, you know, and, and, and that's it, and, you know, whatever. You know. There, there, you know, the more you have insight into that, the more you can speak about it in a way that's compelling and interesting for anybody that hasn't realized it, or anybody that has also. So Siddha Marsh had a penchant for talking about kind of the lower things in the highest way, I told him. And he, he liked that. Hmm? Of course, very tastefully, he would also, he would often give references to the Leela if it answers for questions and so forth. But um, he was more like Prabhupada in that respect, a little bit more tight-lipped about um, uh, intimate details or some, you know, Prabhupada would typically be asked something about, you know, why does Radharani do, you know, do this? And Prabhupada would say, well, why don't you go there and find out? You know, this is surreal. Good answer, you know, sometimes. So, um, so yeah, that, you, you want to be, you got to tune into your audience and that's a call, you, you know, you have to make on the fly there, right? You know, nowadays, um, like we're integrating with the, uh, like I went to the Bhakti Fest, right? So there's a lot of people practicing Bhakti in America and the yoga scene. So it's, um, you know, they're rubbing elbows with um, Gaudiya Vaishnavas. So the policy is that in an assembly, the devotees just sit and listen to nonsense and that you never, you never, um, refute it because, you know, you want to be cool and not seen as a fanatic. So, of course, Prabhupada and Bhakti Siddhanta would never, but where this is considered good thing, that we can sit and listen to this with admits innocent people and, um, and never oppose it. And, you know, be one of them. That's like all of our... Well, I, you want to take some middle ground there. I think that you're taking or you're being advised to take an extreme position, I, I think that you could take some middle ground. There's a way in which you can represent how you feel about topics in such a way that it doesn't become confrontational. But nonetheless, if people hear about it, they think, well, that's an interesting way of thinking about it. I didn't think about it like that. You don't have to diss whatever they're, they're saying and say, that's wrong, you're not God, that's Maya. You know? Um, and, and, and say, I'm out of here. You know, <laughs> you don't have to say it like that. You just say, well... Yeah, yeah, that's very interesting. We in our in our school school, you see, we think about it a little differently. We practice what's called Shuddha Bhakti. It's like bhakti without any admixture of, of gyan or yoga, for example. And so we look at it like this. And uh, but what you said is really interesting. But you know, here's how we think of, you know, that's kind of you don't have to. I mean, you don't have to hide yourself, but. You don't have to try to make everybody think like you do and feel uncomfortable if they, if, if they don't. Feel comfortable with, with the way you think about it and comfortable enough to talk about it. And, and, if, you, and if, you, if you are 
into it that much. It, it would think you'd think it would be attractive and, and interesting. So I think there's some, like I say, some some middle ground to take. And Bhaktivinoda was like that. He he was not confrontational in in, in many respects, um, but he certainly made his points at the same time um, in his books and so forth. Um, so that's what I would suggest. And you know, you you, you want or you did refer to Prabhupada and Bhakti Siddhanta Sarasutakura, and you know, they had their approaches, and all approaches are somewhat relative to time and circumstance. So I think the people that are telling you that, giving you the policy, which again is like, you know, we talked about that earlier, you know, the policy for preaching. I don't think you're gonna have a policy that controls every preacher or what they say and what they can say. That's a little art artificial, as Prabhupada would say. Krishna will give you inspiration in your heart. And so but, I mean, uh, some general advice, someone says, look, this is the nature of the audience, this is what they're like, this is how they think, so think about that before you, you talk to them. That, make, that makes sense, if you, before you share your ideas. Or, you know, you, for that matter, you can go there and get, a, get, a, just go, get an education for yourself, how they really think about everything, and how weird it is for you, or whatever. <laughs> and then, you know, you can go back and think about being informed, how, how to... How to Share your ideas with them. Like I, I'm pretty, you know. I, I I speak to people in those circles, yoga community, and so forth, all, all the time. And um, you know, there's ways to make the points that there's more to spiritual life than just uh, finishing your karma. Hmm. Shanti, shanti. Shanti. There's something. There's some, there's possibility of uh, of uh, positive growth beyond removal of the of the the negative that's bonding binding me here. You know, prayim prayogen and so forth. So, it you know it, it, it's it's. Uh, I think you you want to get into maybe a sharing kind of a space rather than a preaching space. So when it comes, to, when they pass the stick around to you and it's your turn to share, you know, <laughs> around the fire, you know, then you share how you think about all things. And you might be surprised. It's like, it's a pretty neat way to think about all Vedanta. Chaitanya Mahaprabhu was, I mean, it's so beautiful. I mean, the subject matter is consciousness, right? This is the subject matter of Vedanta, consciousness. It's the subjective subject. Uh, and it's so relevant. It's so relevant. I mean, it's everything. It's never going to be irrelevant, the topic of consciousness. It's the most relevant topic there is in human society. As much as people are not thinking about it, as much as they're not living a human life, really. And, um, and very you know, well-educated people are thinking about it in different ways than, than, than we do. But it's, it's, anyway, a relevant current topic. And this is the topic of the Upanishads. And when you get to the Bhagavatam, it's like, it's like about, about the consciousness of consciousness. It's like, wow. I mean, so if you can... If, you might want to think that here are other people, for example, in your yoga community or Bhakti Fest that are, that are very... Um, that are interested in consciousness and and, 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 and and they agree with the basic premise that you have that consciousness is is what I am, the body is what I'm I'm not, uh, in, in in a basic sense, I I guess. 
They're attracted to that kind of idea. So that you have some camaraderie. You have real camaraderie on that, real tangible camaraderie compared to so many other people. So, you know, go with the, what you have in common like that. And uh, and then, then you have much to share as well because you've got insight, at least theoretically, and even some experience about the consciousness of of consciousness. I mean, that is the Chaitanya Charit Amrita is the is the Bhagavatam distilled. It's about you know the the, the immortal character of consciousness, the, the nature of consciousness in immortality. I mean, it's like it's like how how Radha you know thinks about Krishna, the consciousness of consciousness. It's, that's what the Bhagavatam is. It so excels in this field. Hmm? In 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 the field of consciousness, that it's just mind mind boggling, and you know what you have something to to offer, and 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 it's exciting to be able to, to discuss it with people who are into the subject of consciousness to go and to speak about nuances, nuanced uh, ideas of the nature of of being and so forth that we have in in uh, Chaitanya Vaishnavism. It's it's like a feast. So uh, and and again, you, you you're connecting on a basic level, with, and most of the a lot of these people have never heard these ideas before, hmm? so they're not locked in necessarily to to another idea. Yeah. Isn't that kind of how the the Bhagavatam, the Shastra, expands? It starts with four verses, mm-hmm. and then the more sharing. And expressing it in different ways according to time, place, and circumstance. And the Bhagavatam is so many stories and stories and stories. Questions and answers. Yeah, and within well, questions and answers, yeah. And with the stories answering the questions and the answers, but there's also questions in the stories with the right. answers. So, yeah. But it keeps on expanding from different audiences. Yeah. It just yeah. keeps on going, and we're still in that. We're still in the Bhagavatam. It's still expanding. That's you know, right. Prabhupada added his part. You know that, that has got us going into the, the mm-hmm. Bhagavatam. So it's by sharing, it's ever expanding. That's right. Bhakti, actually, the root baj of the verbal root of the word bhakti means to to share. It it actually implies a giving and a taking. A, uh, so yeah, yeah. And Prabhupada used to say, "What sixty volumes? That is the minimum." In the heavenly planets, there are hundreds of volumes of Bhagavatam. So, it's not a static thing. Yes? Well, well Narayan had a question. Okay. Ryan? Oh, Narayan. Can you ask your question? Yeah, I have a question about eternity. Why is it so, like, bewildering and scary, you know? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Well, I think that maybe it's a little bewildering to think about it because our experience materially is so different. We experience that things come into being and they end and there's a beginning to everything, there's an end to everything. And so now all of a sudden we're talking about, you know, I have no beginning, I have no end. And I, I, in one sense, I don't have experience of that. And so it's a little bit hard to uh, think about things that you don't have experience of. It makes it disconcerting. It's kind of, it can be kind of troublesome. Maybe that's what, what you're experiencing. Hmm? Um, and, 
at the same time, you know, we don't have any experience of not not existing, do we? Do you have any experience of not existing? No, you don't. Hmm? But you, but that's an interesting point. But you woke up, so and you picked up where you left off, and you slept, and you woke up and said, "I slept good. I feel good." That means that you were conscious in deep sleep because you can't remember something that you didn't experience. So there's a contentless experience in deep sleep. That's like Brahman. It's a contentless experience in deep sleep. And you experience it as you wake up and say, Ah, oh, yeah, I slept well. The idea is the Vedanta idea. You can't remember something that you didn't experience. So you were experiencing, even though your body closed down for all intents and purposes, and your psyche, the dream world closed down. I mean, I mean when you dream, sleep really deeply and you don't even dream, that's when you really get you know rested and so forth. The implication is, this is what Vedanta and the Bhagavad put forward to us as experience. In your own experience, from your own experience, if you think about it, you know this, that for all intents and purposes, your physical dimension stopped functioning. Your psychic dimension, the dream world, the thinking world, closed down. Hmm? But you continue to exist. And when you came back to external waking consciousness, you said, oh, I slept well. Hmm? means you, you're remembering and there is some continuum hmm, between waking, dreaming, and deep sleep. So deep, deep sleep is like death. Hmm? As much as death means that the physical and the psychic dimension uh, close down, well, the psychic dimension may, may continue, but at the, at the, at the death of the universe, Bhagavatam says, the psychic dimension closes down, the physical dimension closes down, and everything goes in, into deep sleep. We call it Shushupti. Inside Mahavishnu. Everyone goes, everything goes to sleep. Hmm? Vishnu himself. And then he wakes up, out, breathes out, and the whole thing starts over again. So our, our day is like that. Our day is a microcosm of the macrocosm of Vishnu's dreaming, sleeping, breathing. Hmm? Every day, we, our, our psychic and physical dimension close down. We go into a deep sleep. Why do we wake up? Because the karma is not finished. So we have to come back. Why does Susupti, why does it start again? Because the karma is not finished. So the world goes on. Hmm? That Susupti is compared to Brahman. The experience of Brahman, a contentless experience. I was existing and it was restful. Hmm? Why was it restful? Because the, the, the body and the mind are calling me, making demands upon me. You know, the senses are dragging me here and there, my mind is dragging me here and there. And, and if they will stop, let go of me for a minute, ah, it'll be peaceful, it'll be restful. Hmm? So, liberation is like that. It's a big, ah, whoa. I no longer have to have to work to meet the demands of my mind and the senses, which take me in directions that aren't good for me, often, like your brother. Look where his senses and mind took him now. He's in an uncomfortable situation. So he's thinking, I wish I would have controlled my mind and senses, but eh, 
they've got a grip on me, you know. So, so if we can get out from underneath their grip, the point is we become restful and we experience it slightly every night. So Bhagavatam says every night you're experiencing what we're talking about. Think about it. Every day and night, every 24 hours, you're being just hit with this, what, exactly what the Bhagavatam is saying. Hmm? That you exist independently of your psychic and physical reality, independently of the demands of your mind and the senses, which are so cruel anyway. They never want to let you go. They don't satisfy you. No matter how much you, you, you meet the demands of your body and mind, you're not satisfied. Hmm? But you exist independently of that. You don't have to answer those. And when you don't, you're peaceful. Hmm? And you experience it. By, that's what the analysis, if you will, of the, of the day and then the sleep and the drink. You know, that's what these rishis are drawing from this. They're saying, this isn't a book knowledge. This is like practical. This is your experience. So the point is that the that eternity, I guess maybe it would be disconcerting unless you knew you were going to live forever and it would just be ecstatic. That doesn't, that doesn't do anything for you. Okay, look at it another, <laughs> look at it another way. So you're not, you're not troubled by your present life. It's pretty good. Well, you're young, you know. <laughs> so young people, they want to change the world and old people want to talk about how the world changed them. So, but we teach how to stay young here. So, so, then, um, so then what are you saying? That because you like your life, it's disconcerting to think about the fact that it won't continue, even though something else may, may, may endure. That's maybe a little philosophical for it. Let's think about what you really like in life. Okay, what do you like? Do you like your house? How about your mom? You like your mom? I better say yes, because she's right here. <laughs> okay. So, so you, you, you like your mom's cooking. You like things. Certain things, you, you like your body. It's pretty good. Anyway, my point is that the things that we like are the things that we invest ourselves in. Think about that for a minute. Let's say you have, uh, are you 16? Would you like to have a car and drive it? No. Uh, what is it that you really like to do? Read? That's a good one. What things do you like? Essentials. <laughs> if we, let's say, let's say you have a car and you like it. Okay. And let's say I have a car and I live in California. Okay. So you hear that my car, your mother says, I just talked to Swami on the internet and he said he got a flat tire in his car. And you, 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 you know, it's like, so what? You know, so I'm going to flat tire. I got things to do, mom, you know. But if your car gets a flat tire, you'll think about it differently, won't you? Especially if you're out and trying to go somewhere and, so why do you think about it differently? Because it's yours, right? But what makes it yours is that you've identified with it. Hmm? It doesn't really belong to you. I mean, it could be taken away at any time, right? but you've identified with it. There are things that you call mine. My body, 
my house, my town. And those things tend to create a sense of I. Like, okay, I'm a Carolinan, you know. Uh, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a man or a boy. Uh, or um, I'm... Yeah. Whatever we're attached to, hmm? our attachments, our sense of my defines our sense of I, you know. That's why the advertisers are so successful. They, they don't think this this car is just like meant for this kind of people. So we're going to make an advertisement. Just there you are, driving in the country, <clears throat> you know, going over the four wheels. That's you, right? So that that kind of guy who identifies with that buys that kind of car. They used to have this commercial of the Marlboro Man, you know, until he got cancer, and he would, you know, he would just ride up on a horse. <laughs> And I'd be out there and just light up a Marlboro, you know. <laughs> and all these guys would be buying Marlboros, and they, so they would be Marlboro men. They so their my defined their I. Do you understand? They had a sense of what I am based on their attachments, based on their desires. I am a father because I identify that I've I've got a son. Hmm? Our desires. Define us. Can you follow me? Our desires define us. So we have a sense of what we are. And materially speaking, it's based on our desires, our likes. Well, I like this. I don't like that. So I'm not into this. I'm not into that. You're defining yourself. You understand? By your likes and dislikes, by your attachments, by your desires. But that identity that's being created by those desires is not one that will endure. So even if you like it, it's problematic. Hmm? Because the fact is that nothing is yours, right? Nothing belongs to you. Hmm? I like my car because it's my car. That means I'm in it. Not physically, maybe, or maybe I am, but I'm in it consciously because consciousness has the capacity to attach itself to things. So it says, my car. Therefore, it has so much meaning to me. What's, what's really meaningful about it is the word my, which is the way in which I go into it. So what's really important is, is me, not the car, the me that has the capacity to attach itself to things. I know this is abstract, but um, you follow me a little bit? It's my house, so because I've identified with it, it's really just whatever. It, it, it doesn't really. Who does, who does this wood belong to, and this mortar, and you know, you know, I've identified with it in a certain way, and so my attachment to it has has created my I. So, but none of these attachments can we keep. Hmm? The reason the thing is important to me because I'm in it. So if we trace back, what's important is consciousness. That consciousness was important. Consciousness is what's what's what makes me happy. Hmm? Conscious the, the the fact that I can ask the question that I asked Swami. That's what makes life worth living. Bhagavatam says, "Kamasindriya priti lavo jivita yabata jivasetatta jignasu nato yaschayakarmobi." One's life should never be lived just for gratifying the senses. 
Indriya Priti. Life should be lived, human life, because it gives us the chance to think that I can ask questions. What am I? Hmm? That thing that can ask questions, that's exciting. Hmm? Consciousness. So what bhakti is about is trying to separate that consciousness out from everything that it's seeped into and identified with and created a, a, a pseudo-identity. Uh, you know, you, you like computers? Aha! So, we got you. So, like, like a virtual reality, for example, right? So, material life is kind of like a virtual reality. Hmm? So, you, what's important is, is not what's on the screen, but the fact that somebody's viewing it. That's, that's exciting. So, Krishna consciousness is about plumbing the depths of that, understanding consciousness. That's exciting. And the theory is that, that it seeps into other things by lingually, by my, these two little letters, my, it's such a big thing that happens. My, and then, oh, that's I, and here I am, involved with all these things that aren't really mine, but I can't keep. It's a false identity. So to separate myself from that and get down to, the, to what, I, what I am, that, that consciousness, that ability to perceive, that, that, that sense of I, Mm-hmm. And the Bhagavatam and the Bhakti teach that that eye is big, it's huge. It's a hugely uh, like exciting thing. It's not a thing. It's the subjective aspect of reality. You have an objective world, matter, and a subjective world. What's more important, the objective world or the subjective world? Put it like this. What's more important, the experienced thing or the experiencer? Well, if it weren't for the experiencer, then who would know? Who would experience, right? So the experiencer is most important. Uh, this is what's to be exciting, what's exciting about life. I'm an experiencer. Now, what does that mean? Hmm? So to Krishna consciousness is to try to, to separate ourselves out from the things we've seeped into, material, the, the things, the objective world that I've identified with, and move towards the subjective world, which is so much more exciting. The objective world is boring. There it is. It's just like that. It's you know, the subjective world is like you can't ever get a handle on it. It's like wow, what a, what consciousness experience. So in bhakti, we 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 want to go into the experience of what it means to be a conscious entity, hmm? and explore the depths of that, independent of projecting myself into material things and giving them meaning. Material things have meaning to me because I go into them. So what's the meaning in them is me, having gone into them. Hmm? That what makes them meaningful. So it's the me. And what is that in me that enables me to go into things? That's consciousness and experience them. So to experience consciousness unto itself hmm? rather than mixed up with matter. Hmm? That's like an exciting proposal. That's what yoga is about. That's what bhakti is about. And what happens when we do that is that we experience, we start to experience what it means to be eternal. And it's, um, it's very comforting. It's, um, you, 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 it's like, it's the end of all problems. Because the biggest problem here is, as much as you like anything, 
And as much as you've got an identity based on that like, you can't keep it. So the more you like something material, the more problematic your life will be. Hmm? Right? Because it's going to be taken away at some point. So that's not a recipe for a happy life. Right? Like Krishna sums it up in two words, he says to Arjuna. Material life, ashashvatam. What does he say? Dukalayam ashashvatam. He tells Arjuna, you know, material life is miserable. And Arjuna says, well, I don't know about that. I kind of like it. <laughs> so Krishna says, you like it? Well, guess what? You can't keep it. Now what? So that's pretty bad. You understand? I really like it, but I can't keep it. So that it's a recipe for disappointment. Hmm? Do you want to be happy? How happy do you want to be? Satisfied. Fully satisfied. Hmm? So that would mean you'd want to have enduring happiness, not happiness that's here today and gone tomorrow. But you can't have that in relation to things that are here today and gone tomorrow. You can only have flickering happiness. You know that song? You know, chapala sukala balagire, kamala dala dala jibana dalama. You're a devotee. Yeah, you should know, must know all these songs. So, like the like the drop of drop of water on the leaf of the lotus. It just it's gone. It's there and it rolls off. Chapala sukala balagire. So here today and gone tomorrow. So if you want to be happy, satisfied, you have to think about it. How can I be satisfied if my satisfaction is derived? from things, having things, whether it be even even your own family. You can't keep them either. What a bummer. Come and live with me, you know. <laughs> no, so, so, I mean, that's just the, the reality of it. So, uh, so the, the, the idea is either you're going to settle for less or you're going to think that I want a satisfaction that is and a happiness in life that's going to be enduring. So I'm going to have to find something that endures. So eternity doesn't become a problem all of a sudden now. You understand? That becomes, wow, there's something that endures, and it's me, and the things that I've been attaching myself to that don't endure are just a formula, a recipe for dissatisfaction. So now i found a way to become fully satisfied. Does that help? Yeah. Okay, something to think about. <laughs> All right, well, we've talked for a while, so we've got more questions tomorrow. Thanks, everybody, for coming and listening. So have session tomorrow here at 10 o'clock. Continued questions and answers for <coughs> anyone that can come. And we'll also have, we've got some cake. Mahara made some cake, and we have some drinks. So this is my prasadam for anybody who likes this. Thank you so much for that. Thank you so much for that.